So if I'm like trapped in an underwater cave and I can't see and the guidelines broken and my life support is failing and that all happened to me on one dive, <laughs> then sure, in the moment, suddenly it's like, Whoa! <laughs> oh my God. But I've learned now that I can take a deep, deep cleansing breath, one that starts up in your shoulders and your, your neck when you're first inhaling, but send it all the way down deep inside your belly. And then from the bottom up, fill your lungs until you're filling your shoulders and filling your neck all the way up. And then after you've taken that breath and held it just for a moment and let it all out, send the emotions with that exhalation. So what I tell myself now is emotions, you won't serve me well right now. So go away. <laughs> I need to be pragmatic. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and a motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. A musician must make music, an artist must paint, a poet must write if he is to be ultimately at peace with himself. And what I love about Jill, you know, she seems to be at peace with herself because she is doing what she must do. She is exploring caves, she is making movies, she's taking pictures, she's exploring the limits of what's possible and being the hands and eyes of scientists. James Cameron said of Jill that more people have walked on the moon than have been to some of the places Jill Heinerth has gone right here on Earth. She leads expeditions to extreme environments to advance scientific and geographic knowledge. She will be inducted into the International Scuba Divers Hall of Fame this year in 2020. And she's the author of the best-selling book, Into the Planet, My Life as a Cave Diver, which has drawn acclaim from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, NPR, and O Magazine. This book is a very personal account that tells her story of underwater cave exploration. And she talks about some incredible experiences that she has had related to fear and how to overcome it, how to move forward in the face of uncertainty. I really enjoyed this book. It's one in which she shares very honestly of her experience, pursuing her passion and making a contribution to others. We also explore some of the contributions that Jill has made not only to the sport of diving, but to science. She talks about the fact that although it might be easy to think of cave divers as extreme sports athletes or as adrenaline junkies, that that's far from the case. She describes instead that cave divers are the eyes and hands of scientists, where she was able to take people to places, in some cases, that human beings have never been, and to record, document, study things like climate change, things like geology, things like hydrology. Jill was inspired as a child by Jacques Cousteau's television series. And in the fifth grade, she gave a science fair project about the mysterious disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle. 
her entire life has been about discovery. We talk about preparation, a skill that's important to success in virtually any endeavor. Jill was the first person to dive the ice caves of Antarctica, diving further into an underwater cave system than any woman ever. In 2001, she became part of a team that explored ice caves of icebergs. Jill is a member of the Explorers Club. She's a fellow of the National Speleological Society. Try saying that five times fast. She's been inducted into the Women Divers Hall of Fame. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Jill Heinerth. And by the way, you can learn more about Jill and her work at intotheplanet.com. Jill, welcome to the School for Good Living. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Jill, will you tell me, please, what's life about? (laughs) Oh, life is about curiosity and exploration for me. Oh, yes. I love that answer. You get along with my brother, Greg. Maybe we'll talk about him a little later. I told him that (laughs) I was going to talk with you, and he said, tell her I've been to the Antarctic. Oh, cool. But I, I know from your book, when people say that, some people really mean it and other people have just been tourists, but (laughs) I'm getting ahead of myself. Jill, when people ask who you are and what you do, or maybe when you're introduced from a stage, how do you like to answer that question? Well, I usually tell people I'm a cave diving explorer and they go, what (laughs) is that? So I'm an underwater explorer that carries a camera into places that nobody has been before. And my specialty is swimming through the veins of Mother Earth inside these water-filled passages beneath your feet. That is amazing. I I didn't realize there were places on this planet that are still unexplored. I mean, even the Mariana mm-hmm. Trench, people have been down in dark parts of that, right? But you really have been places that no other human being had seen, or at least you were the first to be there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's funny because as a kid, you know, I was told the age of exploration was over. And a lot of people thought, well, we've been to the moon, we've been to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, we've been to the top of Everest. What is there left to do? But it turns out there's plenty left to see inside these water-filled caves and in our deep ocean environments. That is amazing. So, okay, I'm so curious how one pursues this as a profession. You know, when we hear people who do, people do all kinds of interesting things. But I think maybe maybe the place to start, and you can guide me here, but I'm interested to know about your relationship with water. Will you talk with me about how and when that began? Yeah, I, I've always been a water baby. I loved, whether it's bath time, you know, or, or swimming or water polo or paddling or whatever. It just, it just always seemed to me that water was my element. I was much more graceful in the water than on land. In fact, my earliest memory is of nearly drowning. I fell off the dock at the cottage, just a young toddler, and was floating face down in the water, uh, drifting by my mother sitting on the dock when she noticed, you know, oh my God, the baby's in the water, you know. But I actually remember that moment. I remember looking down into this clear water with rippled sand beneath me and the sunlight beamed through the water, creating like rainbows on the ripples. And I thought it was beautiful. And at that moment, my mom's like navy blue sneakers like landed right in front of my face and she snatched me up out of the water screaming. And according to, you know, family history, I was laughing. But that, but I just always remember wanting to be in and being comfortable in the water. That, that's so amazing to me because my experience 
as a coach is that many people form an aversion to something when they've had an experience with it that you know was frightening or difficult or something like that but you didn't experience this element that could have been fatal as it sounds like it, for you it didn't hold any fear instead it very much was a fascination no you know later in life like as a teenager i was a swim instructor and one of the classes that i used to teach was the water baby class and moms would bring very young infants to the pool and kids don't have a fear when they're really young. And in fact, they have a really strong mammalian diving reflex, which means that when their face gets wet, they won't suck in water. And little kids can swim amazingly well, um, both on and underwater. So maybe I still had like a really strong reflex at that time. <laughs> wow. I see that in our six-year-old. I think she's been in mm. swim lessons since three, but mm. that's exactly what I say. She's fearless. And it, and it does scare me because she's fearless. But that, you know, that leads me to the next thing that I want to ask you about, which is fear. So I just want to jump right into that as well, man. But I realize that for people listening to really maybe understand the significance of you talking about fear, because anybody can get, especially in this day and age, anybody can get a microphone, anybody can get online and they can talk about anything as though they have some kind of authority. But you again, have been some places and more specifically some depths and pressures and temperatures in darkness that I do think make you uniquely qualified to talk about fear in ways that some knucklehead just, you know, getting online doesn't, doesn't stand up to. So maybe we actually start there about and I'm always conscious, by the way, of when I ask a question, kind of the emotional place it takes us. <laughs> so I want, to be, I, I want to be careful with that, but I also think there's some element of that that's important to get what you have to say about fear. Would you be willing to share some experiences in your diving career where you experienced intense fear? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, to begin with, the, the entire cave diving environment is pretty abstract, and so maybe I should paint a little picture for some of the, the listeners. But Yeah, please. I, I swim into like a vaulted rock space that's completely black. There's no sunlight that penetrates. And in some cases, I might be swimming through this large space the size of your office, maybe even as big as I could put an entire house or a building inside an underwater cave. But at other times, I'm squirming through spaces that are about as big as the space under your bed, where my chest is pinned to the floor, my shoulders to the ceiling, and I'm relying on a life support device to deliver each measured breath. I've got tightness in my chest just, just hearing that. <laughs> yeah, I have to bring all my own lights, all my own life support, all the backups I need in case something goes wrong because it's easy to stir up the silt and then be blind in the darkness underwater. You know, things can move. It's possible that you can have a, a collapse underwater. So there's a lot of things that can go wrong and you've got to be prepared to deal with anything that happens underwater in place because you can't just swim to the surface. You've got to swim out sometimes even a mile or more of this tunnel um, before you can get to a point where you can go back to the surface. And, and on that point, by the way, if I may just jump in, mm -hmm. in the TED talk you gave talking about this, you mentioned that 600 people have died cave diving. And I imagine that number is mm -hmm. more now that, yeah. since you gave yeah. the talk, but this is not a sport for amateurs. No, no. It takes a lot of training, equipment, background, and, and, and a good mindset 
in order to thrive in the environment. And yeah, some people say it's the most dangerous, you know, activity <laughs> or workplace because there have been so many people that have died. Now, most people hear a description of an underwater cave or they see it on TV and it just makes them feel absolutely claustrophobic and terrified. And they're like, I would never do that. Right? I don't have that sense of claustrophobia that others do, but I do have a sense of fear. So I'm not fearless. This is not like an adrenaline sport. <laughs> this is something where I am challenged to do something or go to a place that nobody's been before. And I have to put together the right equipment, the right team, the right protocols in order to do that as safely as possible. So I'm scared and I want to work with people that are scared because it means that we all respect the risk and we want to come home at the end of the day. And so my job is about trying to mitigate as much of that before we go into the environment and then and then really have a hit list of things that could go wrong and a knowledge that I have the right team equipment protocols to deal with those eventualities underwater in place. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. One of the parts of your book that I was just captivated by was when you talked about the underwater cave system in Mexico, that when you went, it, you were one of the very first people to mm -hmm. go. And I understand that you established a world record by connecting caves there. Am I, do I understand that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. W will you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Mexico in the Yucatan Peninsula in the sort of tourist region that they call the Riviera Maya, it's become a tourist region because of these beautiful blue pools called cenotes. And that's the Maya word for well, because all of the water runs underground in this region. There are no surface rivers. So all the water drains from inland out towards the ocean in these underground cave systems. And in the, you know, late 80s and into the 90s. That was the really the earliest part of exploration in that part of Mexico. It was a quiet, sleepy place where we could camp on the beach and not see any lights on the horizon. So it's a far cry from what it is today with the tens of thousands of hotel rooms now. But as we started exploring the caves there, we realized, you know, they were getting longer and longer and longer. And in the past 20 years, we keep reconnecting one cave with another cave and creating world records at the same time um, for, you know, how far from the entrance that you can swim in these systems. So back in the, um, the mid-90s, I was working quite actively on exploration there, and there were, you know, swimming tens of thousands of feet into these passageways, trying to connect them with other systems. And we did, in fact, at one point, connect the two largest systems to create the longest underwater cave system in the world. Since that time, we've we've have a, a better understanding of the region, and we sort of think of it as one giant cave or one giant you know sponge basically of limestone. And uh, it's just a matter of finding your way through this warren of tunnels. That, that's amazing. I mean, it's if I understand right, it's literally hundreds of miles mm -hmm. of cave systems. Yeah, absolutely. right. And, and the other the other thing that I I had no awareness of was if I have the term right, sump. Is mm -hmm. it like something yeah. or some? Sump diving, yeah. Sump diving. Will you talk mm -hmm. about that? I'll bet most people listening to this have no idea what that is. Sure. So the Yucatan Peninsula is very flat. And so all of those caves are, you know, mostly water filled. But if you go to a mountainous region, like in central Mexico, there are caves inside of mountains. So um, imagine, you know, the rain falls in the mountains and it soaks into the ground. And as it soaks into the ground, it will slowly 
erode away more soluble limestone or wash away grains of sand, basically. And the water wants to move from a high point to a low point. And so as it soaks into the ground and moves through the mountain, it can actually carve conduits over your geologic time, basically. So if you enter a hole in a ground in the top of a mountain, you might rappel down a shaft and then crawl horizontally through a space that's half filled with water and then get to a point where you're in a waterfall and you've got to rappel further. And eventually you'll get to the point where the passages, you can go no farther unless you swim underwater because they're completely water filled. And when you swim through an underwater system and then you pop back up and find more airspace, that's a sump. And that combination of swimming and then caving is called sump diving. And it's the most dangerous form because you're so remote. You might be down two miles of rope before you even jump into the first cave dive. And if something happens on the dive or on the other side of the sump, then you know, rescue might be impossible. Yeah, that that is, I mean, when I hear that, extreme doesn't quite capture, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the potential intensity of that. And as human yeah. beings are constantly looking for new ways to push limits and to explore, you know, boundaries and to push themselves, that sounds like a really incredible way <laughs> to go about that. But I know some of this was following from that thread of fear, that conversation of fear. And you have this really beautiful image in, in your book that is of the, as I understand it, is of the cave in the Yucatan Peninsula that you had tried to get years before with a still camera, but the exposure didn't, didn't work. And then you went back maybe 20 years later and got yeah, the image? I did. Yeah, that's the cov cover of the book, actually. Oh. Yeah. So this very deep cave system that my uh, husband at the time and I had explored, discovered, it's called the pit in Mexico. And now it's a popular tourist spot. <laughs> when, you know, when we were first exploring it, we hacked our way through the bush with machetes in order to get there. And so back in the day when we first explored it, I was shooting with an underwater camera with film in it. And when you had film in an underwater camera, you could have 36 frames and of course, you're, you're guessing what your exposure should be. And this cave, the entrance of this cave is so big. It's like photographing, a, you know, a baseball stadium, essentially. And I had tried to hold that little film camera still, but I needed like, like a minute long exposure to get this, this huge vaulted, you know, dark room and try and capture what I was seeing with my own eyes. And and I didn't do a good job because it's really hard, impossible to hold a camera completely motionless for a whole minute. But that image was stuck in my head. And, and a few years later at that site, I actually had a diving accident where I, I suffered from something called decompression illness. Very nearly ended my career and could have ended my life. So still that image of that place was burning this hole in my head. So when I finished writing the book, I knew that I wanted that location to be on the cover of the book. So 20 years after getting bent, I go back down to Mexico and go into this place and sit in the very spot where I had the first symptoms of, of the uh, decompression hit and then got the shot for the front, front cover of the book. There's so much in, in what you're saying that mm -hmm. I, I find just so beautiful. One thing being this not, and again, you can 
you know, correct me or, or, or add to, you know, my understanding, but this ability, I'm thinking of Maslow's statement. Mm-hmm. I might butcher this, but about, unless a man does, you know, what is true to himself, he'll never be happy. Something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, true. a man must be what he is. And, and I'm hearing like, you have this, I don't know if it's a fascination or a calling or a draw to, to this, it seems this sport or this activity, but I know it's more than a sport. It's also science. There's a contribution to humanity. And I want to talk to you about some of that fresh water and protecting our planet and things like that. But this commitment or this something. So where I'm trying to get with this, so that I just wanted to acknowledge that, that I really admire the lifelong passion and commitment that you have to this activity. And and then also in what you've talked about there, if I understand right, the pit is at least 700 feet deep. No, it's 400 feet deep. So, so 400 feet. Yeah. And you had been diving at that time for years and years. I mean, uh-huh. you've been, you'd been an instructor, I think. Yep. Right. And you still got, you talked about this decompression illness mm-hmm. or the bends, which I know many people listening might know what that is. Yeah. But I, when I read that part of your book, I, again, I, I got the, I would say heebie-jeebies. Like I was worried for you and I would have wondered if you died, <laughs> if you, if I wasn't reading your words. Well, yeah, for those that don't know what decompression illness is, basically, like when you go underwater, there's this great weight of the water that's pressing on your body. That's pressure. And you become much like a soda pop bottle with a cap on it. (laughs) Because the deeper you go and the longer you go, the more that that pressure wants to push inert gas into your tissues. So when we when we breathe underwater, we we use the oxygen in in the breathing mix that's metabolized by our cells. But there's other gases in that breathing mix that are of no use to the human body. So in a shallow dive, it's just nitrogen. On a deeper dive, we actually put helium in the mix as well. So so my body's storing this nitrogen and helium that is of no use, and it's just shoving those pressurized tiny tiny bubbles into my tissues. And when it's time to finish the dive and come back to the surface, I have to take a series of very slow steps to relieve the pressure slowly, like taking the cap off that soda pop bottle very slowly. And if I didn't do that, like if I just raced up from 400 feet deep, it would be like ripping the cap off the soda pop bottle and those tiny bubbles would come out of solution in my tissues and then cause anything from a skin rash to you know paralysis if they get lodged in your spinal cord or stroke if they get lodged in your brain or or you can die so that's what decompression yeah that's what decompression illness is and so it it can be mild but it can be extremely it can be extremely serious and and i had a pretty serious hit in the middle of the mexican jungle while exploring the pit yeah and part of what to me was really powerful about your description well first of all was your honesty and your vulnerability with it because mm-hmm. as one who's not a diver, I have many friends who do dive, but, but I don't, you know, I've heard of this and I've heard like, no, you can't, you know, go diving and then get in a helicopter and, th- and things like that. Like you got to be careful because this is truly a matter of life and death or you can't come up too fast and things like that. But what I didn't know was that in some cases that people actually, other divers will look down upon divers who experience this because something you should have known better or you could have prepared or something. But that's not always true that, right, even to experienced divers, this can happen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're learning more and more about physio- physiological limits of the human body. And it's, it's quite clear that this is, this is really a sports injury. I mean, 
Yes, you can get bent when you make a mistake. I mean, if I panicked and swam to the surface without doing my decompression stops, I would probably get bent and maybe die, right? But you don't have to have made a mistake to get bent. This is still such an edgy endeavor, this technical diving, that people like me are, are really guinea pigs on the front line. And, you know, if I have a great day out, then everything might go perfectly well. But but people who make no mistakes get bent too. Mm. And I know that after that experience, when you did exit the water and you were able to make it to a doctor who was able to help you, there were a few things from that that I, th- when you tell that part of, of your story that I found fascinating. First being that he told you never to dive again, right. <laughs> but you didn't yeah. listen to that guy. Well, like I said, I was sort of, you know, on the edge of, of, of what is possible and what was known. I mean, when I first walked into his clinic to get help, he kind of looked at me and thought I'd come from Mars when I described what had happened. And he says, I don't know if I can help you. I've never treated someone for this magnitude of a, of a, of a hit. I've never treated someone for a, a hit that involved helium. And uh, he didn't know what to do. I said, well, we're in this together, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting because, and I, you know, that saying about only those who are willing to risk going too far, you know, that T.S. Eliot quote, only those who are willing to risk going too far can find out how far one can possibly go. And your spirit of pushing those limits. And and I find it fascinating when you encounter people in the day-to-day normal world who, you know, someone like this doctor who they treat, you know, people who are there on holiday, you know, and they might've gotten sick and on their casual dive and things like this. And then you walk in, and it's this deep, these, these exotic gases, you know, this kind of thing. And we're all doing the best we can, you know, so he's making this recommendation, which you didn't follow <laughs> for, for all of our benefit. I, I happen to think for reasons we'll explore in a moment. But one of the things that you talk about him saying to you was that it was a good thing you were feeling pain. Oh, yeah. So the very first treatment I had, when you get treated for decompression sickness, you get put into a can, basically, and repressurized so that they can push those bubbles back into your tissues, essentially, so to remove that physical threat. They're also giving you very high concentrations of oxygen in order to start the healing process, basically. And so when I first went into the clinic and he did a like a field neurological test, he determined that in all probability that some of the bubbles that I was suffering from were in my spinal cord because I was having like a sensory uh, deficit in my arms, for instance, and and some other issues. And so that's really serious. You know, bubbles can move, <laughs> you know, they can, the situation can get worse, but you get put into this can and repressurized. And generally, while you're pressurized, you start to feel a lot better. So when I came out of that first treatment, which took six hours, I thought, oh, wow, I'm fixed, you know. <laughs> but when I woke up in the middle of the night, hours later, I woke up in excruciating pain. And I thought, then I thought, what have I done to myself? You know, oh my God, you know, this is terrifying. And when I went to see him the next day, he actually said that that was a good sign <laughs> because he felt like I was actually sort of waking up some of the nerve damage that I had done. So yeah, it's kind of hard to to hear that, that yeah, the pain is good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's not the only empowering reframe that I took away from your book. You also talk about not seeing failure as failure. But will you talk about how you think of failure? 
Yeah. Well, whether it's in the uh, in the course of creating this weird hybrid career where I'm constantly kind of, you know, pitching and figuring out where the next paycheck is going to be from and, you know, waiting in a pile of rejection letters, right? <laughs> or whether it's like planning a mission that doesn't go as planned. I don't think any of those things are, are failures. I mean, I've come to recognize that that those are just what I call discovery learning. Yeah. So when something doesn't work as planned or falls apart, there's always something you can learn from it. You can never change what happened in the past. You can't change the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever. What you can change is what you do with that information and how you move forward in life. So in that way, those failures become gifts because they're full of wisdom, new information, and and never, ever regrets. Because if you if you like who you are today, then that means that you like everything that was thrown your way throughout life that built who you are today. So they're all gifts. They're all experiences. I, I think that's such a beautiful perspective. And as you say that, I wonder too, what if you don't like who you are today? <laughs> <laughs> then then figure out what it is that gives you joy and chase that. <laughs> I mean, I used to have a conventional career and probably made more money in my life back then, but I wasn't genuinely happy until I let go of that and and basically jumped into that cold water of uncertainty and um, and built something that I do love doing every day. That's awesome. I think many people dream of that. You know, yeah, that's you know, the the quiet lives of desperation thing. I think for many, it's such an interesting time right right now. I mean, right now in the midst of coronavirus isolation, there are a lot of people who are probably rethinking their life right now. And going, gosh, you know, that thing that I did two weeks ago or three weeks ago as a career, I don't know if that serves me anymore. I don't know if it's going to be there anymore. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of change. A lot of crisis, a lot of what people perceive as failure right now, but it's also a time of opportunity and a chance to look inward and pursue, you know, new things. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right on. Man, I want to ask you about, because I'm still, I feel like I haven't totally got to this thing of fear mm-hmm. <laughs> that I wanted to, yeah, and I'm not yeah. sure what's there, but something. And one of them is the story that you tell about an experience you had when you were younger and you had a night alone in an apartment that really helped you. And I, and I know not everybody has a catalyzing or a, like a transformational moment quite like that. Yeah, I had moved off campus and my very first night alone in this house that uh, four other girlfriends were going to move into with me, someone broke into the house. And my first reaction was a natural one. You know, I, I hear somebody inside the house downstairs and I literally pulled the covers over my head curled up in the fetal position in bed you heard him break break the window break the door yeah and then moving around mm-hmm. in the house yep creeping through the house opening up drawers moving things around and I was terrified and all I could think of was hide you know <laughs> and I think that's a natural reaction but as this burglar continued to poke around in the house I realized you know my heart was beating so hard that covers were practically jumping off of my body. Like hiding was not logical. If he wasn't going to leave the house, I was going to have to do something. And so the situation was pushing me, pushing me more and more to to take action and responsibility. And I remember shaking so hard that I couldn't control myself. I thought my heart was going to leap out of my chest. 
And I remember thinking, well, you know, what should I do? I'll, I'll make some noise. You know, I'll stamp around in the bedroom and uh, maybe that'll scare him off. I didn't want to use my voice because I didn't want him to know that I was a woman. Stomping around in my bedroom didn't scare him away either. So I continued to hear him root through the house and, and I thought, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to find a weapon. I'm going to have to defend myself. And I thought, well, I'll, I've got this brick that's holding up a bookcase, you know, <laughs> maybe I could throw the brick at him. And then I realized that if I threw the brick, that would be his brick <laughs> and he would now have a weapon. And I, I just, you know, my mind was just going a million miles an hour. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? But, you know, to make a long story sh short, I ended up having to fight off this burglar with a pair of X-Acto knives from my drafting table. And even after I scared him off and he left the house, I was so terrified. I was speechless. Like I literally ran out the front door, down the street in my pajamas and X-Acto knives and banged my fists on the window of a subway station at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> until they let me in. And then I could not speak. I was just incapable of, of verbalizing what had happened. And they called the police and brought the police. And, and it was only in the comfort and safety of the police arriving that I, I got my stuff together and, and could speak. And I carried around that experience for a long time. I mean, I was, I was traumatized. I'd wake up in the middle of the night fighting off that same burglar. But down the road, after a lot of introspection and help from friends, I realized that, like I said, I couldn't change the thing that had happened. I could never take that away. But what I could do is use that experience and, and recognize that the next time I was scared, I would now be better equipped to deal with a situation as frightening as that. And I, and I know most people will never go into a cave and go cave diving, and I know most people will never have to fight off a burglar. But everybody has dark caves in their lives right now. In fact, most of humanity is living in their own dark cave right now, yeah, you know, yeah. literally isolated from this coronavirus and, and ruminating in the dark cave of their mind with a lot of terrifying possibilities of, you know, how do I pay my rent? How do I get the food? How do I take care of the kids? You know, oh my God, is the school ever going to go open again? So fears don't have to be physical altercations. Fears are genuine no matter what the source and expression is. But, but I think that whether it's a dark cave that I'm swimming in or a dark cave of, of our own making, that there are good strategies that I've learned now to employ to deal with that fear. Yeah. And thank, and thank you for sharing that. And, that. and I know that is true in a way that is probably not easy necessarily to convey in language because mm -hmm. experience, I think, really is the best teacher. Mm -hmm. And obviously you're very articulate. You've written an entire book and shared a lifetime of experiences in a very beautiful way. But when it comes to what you've learned about, I would say managing or dealing with or overcoming or acting despite fear. And I keep picturing you for some reason in the pit, you know, at 400 feet or something. And, and, and especially in that moment where you had the decompression illness and, it, and you described like feeling like ants coming up your legs, but that's really being the bubbles right in your system. And in that holy shit moment, like, what do you do? And, and when you say you, you know, you've learned things, what could other people do, you know, that you've learned that could help them manage whatever their particular fear is? Yeah. I mean, when something 
terrifying happens. The first thing that happens is your heartbeat races. Your respirations start to just ramp right up. And these little, what I call chattering monkeys, explode inside your head. There's a million conversations going on. Oh, my God, what if, what if, what if? And it literally hijacks your brain. It hijacks your pragmatism. So if I'm like trapped in an underwater cave and I can't see and the guidelines broken and my life support is failing and that all happened to me on one dive, <laughs> then sure, in the moment, suddenly it's like, Whoa! <laughs> oh my God. But I've learned now that I can take a deep, deep cleansing breath, one that starts up in your shoulders and your, your neck when you're first inhaling, but send it all the way down deep inside your belly. And then from the bottom up, fill your lungs until you're filling your shoulders and filling your neck all the way up. And then after you've taken that breath and held it just for a moment and let it all out, send the emotions with that exhalation. So what I tell myself now is emotions, you won't serve me well right now. So go away. <laughs> I need to be pragmatic. And at that point, the problem is still too big to solve, right? I mean, I don't know how I'm going to get out of the cave. I mean, I'm stuck behind someone who's panicking. The line is broken. I can't see. I've got to fix my life support. I've got to patch the guideline. They'll get us both out. That is all too much to figure out. But I always know, we always know what the next best step is, you know. For me, that might be just calming down my buddy or it might be patching the guideline. It's a small step in terms of what's happening now in our lives. Just getting up in the morning, you know, putting on your clothes and making your bed just might be enough to set a little bit of order into your life and then think about what the next best step forward is. So. I think when I can throw away those emotions and celebrate these tiny victories, they they all pile up and they put me in a good headspace for dealing with issues, but they all add up to victory, success, survival. So I think think small, um, yeah, and leave the emotions. We'll have time to honor the emotions later, and it is important to do that later when you have space. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Okay, man, there's so much more that I want to ask you about. I want to ask you about I want to ask you about being a woman in in this sport and you you talk about that. I want to ask you about preparation for a dive, like what you do, how you do what the experience is like like taking us through that. Specifically how you think of preparation because whether we dive or we do surgery or we teach, you know, grade school, preparation is a thing. I want to talk to you about the scientific advancements, like the rebreather development, the mapping the caves, you know, this kind of thing, working with James Cameron, the importance of fresh water, and then plastic or environmentalism. Yeah. So I know that's a ton. We have a lot to talk about. might have more, but <laughs> where do you want to go with the conversation? Oh, well, we'll start with the preparation. I mean, when I'm planning for a dive, I mean, I do a lot of research and planning and, and training and preparation well in advance, sometimes years in advance of a, a particular mission. But right before the dive, I do a little sort of meditative experience where I, I, I'm, my gear's ready. I've used like stringent, unyielding protocols to prep the gear. But right before the dive, I still have to sit there and visualize what could go wrong. What's the worst that can happen? And before I go underwater, I will mentally rehearse 
all those things that could go wrong and physically like practice the motor control like oh I would need to reach that valve behind me on the right and turn it off and then reach across my chest and touch this valve and hit that button and so I'll rehearse the the, the mental steps and the motor control so before I go underwater I know I got this. Whatever happens, I'm prepared and ready. And I've done this list. So I'm, I'm prepared for success. And I think that applies to a lot of other, a lot of other parts of, of our lives as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, hearing you say that about the mental rehearsal and the, the, the anticipation and all this, re- remembering, you know, that people sometimes die from something as simple as not having flipped a switch or opened a valve. And you've had that experience, which is also something I want to ask you about. I think it was Frank on the beach and describing feeling his life force leaving. Yeah, I, I've had a few experience in, in experiences in my life where I've tried to resuscitate somebody who, who drowned. And Henry Kendall was one of them. He was a Nobel laureate. Oh, that's Henry, not Frank. Henry, yes. Yeah, that's okay. Henry is the person who discovered quarks, the subatomic particle. And uh, he died on a, on a rebreather, but yeah, to be to be there, you know, in that moment, hoping and wishing that your you know physical interventions might save a life, it's a big burden to carry when when you're not successful resuscitating someone. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was he was someone that you you had a long relationship with. Well, actually, my colleague Bill Stone had an especially close relationship with with Henry because Henry, beyond being a Nobel laureate and physicist, was an adventurer. He climbed many significant mountains around the world and was a, a, a diver and a rebreather diver, obviously. So he was he was on the edge of, of technology too, and he frequently, you know, had good collaborations and conversations with with my colleague Bill, and so I got to know him a little bit through through that project. Yeah. Mm. And and talking about that that technology, the rebreather, mm-hmm. that was something that sounded like science fiction, and mm-hmm. I think it did to a lot of people before before Bill created it. I know you were a part of that team. Will you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. So most people are familiar with traditional scuba diving equipment, where you wear a tank on your back, you inhale from the tank, and when you exhale, you make bubbles. Well, when we dive very deep, we use up a lot more gas, and we dive on these long missions, we use up a lot more gas. And so we need to use a strategy that conserves our our resources, basically. And that technology is called a rebreather. It's exactly the same equipment that an astronaut wears to do a spacewalk. So it's a life support pack. And instead of making bubbles and wasting exhaled gas, what we're doing is we're recapturing that so that we can recycle the oxygen and use it again. Now, we have to deal with carbon dioxide being exhaled, and so that gets scrubbed out of the breathing mix, and then little injections of oxygen are added in. So there's a very complicated, you know, electrical system and sensors that that help you to manage your life support gases. But what it enables us is a much greater range. We can go deeper. We can go farther with a smaller package of, of stuff, basically. So it's it's a... It's a great addition to the kind of science work we do, and we don't make bubbles. So if we're involved with marine life, we don't scare away the animals. We're more a part of their world now. That's really cool. And what could go wrong with taking something electrical like that underwater? (laughs) (laughs) A lot. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah, I've been like, you know, one of the 
pioneering divers in this the use of this technology since the 90s and and um, and so I've been in the position of being a real test pilot for um, decades <laughs> on on different developmental aspects of rebreather diving. So yeah, I've seen a lot that has gone wrong. Everything from batteries exploding out of the back of my unit to flooding um, that causes this caustic alkaline mess that can you know dissolve your skin <laughs> to all kinds of failures that you have to overcome. So yeah, yeah I've, I've seen a lot. <laughs> yeah, because going into a dark, watery place isn't scary enough. <laughs> oh my well, goodness. It, it might not sound logical, but using those rebreathers, using them properly with the right sa safety protocols actually gives us a lot more options in, in the face of an emergency if we're inside a cave. <laughs> Amazing. I know, man, there's so much more in your work that we haven't even touched on about the journey to the Antarctic and diving inside the largest moving object on the planet and environment, what you've seen when it comes to the environment and the importance of fresh water. But what, what feels important to you to say about that, any of that now? You know, a lot of people just think that cave divers are adrenaline junkies that are just out doing this action and adventure sport, you know, like base jumping. And it's not that at all. Really, cave divers become the eyes and the hands of scientists inside these remote places, places where the scientist can't go. I mean, if the scientist spends their entire life on a particular specialty, then that's their focus in life. They don't have the time to develop the the skills and background that someone like like me does. And so when we work together, we can do something really exciting because because caves are like museums of natural history. They contain evidence of the Earth's past climate. They contain the remains of ancient civilizations that have used these to, as portals to the underworld. They contain the bones of extinct animals and even living animals that swim through these environments in the complete blackness, animals that are more closely related to things that we might find in space. So it's really worthwhile to explore caves. And, and that's where I get the purpose out of my work is to work with scientists on climate change and biology and hydrology and, and things that are, are really important. I mean, I'm swimming through your drinking water, the very sustenance of the planet. And you say in your TED Talk that in the future, we'll fight wars for water. We already are. <laughs> There's no question that we already are. I mean, you know, the Colorado River doesn't flow to the sea anymore. And there are people fighting over the rights to that water. And when that happens, there are, you know, farms that don't get water and that dry up. There are communities whose wells dry up, you know, and that's one example in North America. In other places, we are literally fighting wars over water supply. And if we live in a world where we're fighting over access to drinking water, we're going to always live in a world of, of conflict. We have to solve it. It's got to be a basic human right. Yeah. And we're already seeing for the first time ever climate refugees, people mm -hmm. fleeing, you know, where they lived because of rising water levels. Yeah. And it's not just Bangladesh, you know, yeah. it's the Florida Keys, it's Miami, it's, you know, we can't stop ocean level rise. Even if we completely reverse our bad environmental practices right now, ocean level rise is not going to stop. There are going to be tens of millions of climate refugees moving out of low-lying places like New Orleans or South Florida or the Florida Keys, and it's going to make the coronavirus nightmare look like a cakewalk. We've got to prepare for these things and use this opportunity to visualize what these sorts of crises can do to humanity. So... 
as horrible as this situation is right now, the pandemic, it is an opportunity for us to learn how to do things differently. Yeah. What can any individual do? I know it's easy to think, I'm just one person. What difference do I make? But of Mm -hmm. course, each of us does make a difference. But what can we do? Well, you know, here we are, we're back to that big problem, celebrate small victories <laughs> thing again. Climate change is huge. We are going to need climate mitigation efforts that are only going to come from, you know, great thinkers with lots of financial resources. We need to find a way to get carbon out of the atmosphere. And that's all too overwhelming for you and I sitting in our in our home offices here right, right now. So the next best small steps that we can make is to, you know, use this opportunity that we're having right now in isolation to realize how small we can all live, you know, how much less we really need to drive the car or, you know, how much better we can be at conserving resources, you know, not making food waste. You know, anything that you can do to be thrifty is probably good for the planet. (laughs) And then also to vote with our wallets as well, to buy things that are as local as possible, you know, buy things that are better for the planet, you know, don't buy bottled water if you've got clean water coming out of the tap or if you can filter it in some way to make it make it suitable. So it's all small stuff right now for you and I. And as we wait for those big answers that we will inevitably need to jump on the bandwagon to be a part of. Yeah. What's that saying that no one can do everything, but everyone can do something? Yeah, that's a great one. Absolutely. And that's what we're doing yeah. right now. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so I'm sure more will pop up, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I want to keep us moving through the structure of the interview. So with your permission, and how are you doing, by the way? Great. You good? Thanks. Okay, good. Yep. Um, With your permission, I want to transition to the enlightening lightning rounds. Okay. Let's give it a try. Good for you? Yeah. Okay. First question. Mm -hmm. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. (laughs) Life is like a... Ooh. Unfinished story. Okay. Number two, then borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? <laughs> they think I'm fearless. So yeah, they don't, they don't really understand how I wish to chase and embrace fear as a motivating part of my life. They mm. think I'm nuts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Number three, if you were required every day, for the rest of your life, to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Mm, imagine. Imagine? hmm I like that. Thank you. Okay. Number four, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? <laughs> the SAS Survival Handbook. <laughs> really? So, yeah, I know. That's a weird one. It's just a like it's a really cool illustrated text on everything from making fires to trapping animals and stuff. I would, Hardly I the narrative you might have expected. No, but because I understand your role when you went to the Antarctic was chief safety officer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So I can see this is mandatory reading assigned by a chief safety officer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I totally get that. What what are you currently reading? I'm actually reading Against All Odds, which is uh, written by two of my very dear friends about the Thai cave rescue. Hmm. All right. Thank you. Number five. So you've traveled an incredible amount. What, what are some of the things that you do or some of the things you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? 
Hmm. Well, I, I like to do a lot of research before I travel, especially when I'm going to a like a really different culture. And I like to learn as much as I, I can in advance so that I'm behaving respectfully, I'm dressing respectfully, and, and I'm, you know, not being one of those thoughtless foreign tourists that just kind of bowls their way into it. You can say American, you can say it. No, 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 it's any, it's any, it's any tourist, yeah. So I try to learn a little bit of the language too, like if you can figure out a few words or a phrase that's appropriate in the, in the language, I like to do that. That goes a long ways. Yeah. I have an incredibly well-equipped backpack too, so... As I'm traveling, if if something inevitably goes wrong, as it does when we travel, and you're stuck sleeping in the airport, I'm going to be comfortable. So, what kind of backpack is it? Do you know the brand? And oh, I just have an Osprey. I don't know what the model is, but an Osprey backpack. But is it is it with a frame or without? Oh, without. Yeah, just like a day pack. Yeah, yeah. I have a real bag fetish, so I have a bunch of different bags. Yeah, me, too. But, me too. Yeah. But, you know, I have everything from a titanium spork and like a couple of food items in there. These days I have N95 masks and gloves in there. Um, My most recent trip, I was in Micronesia and this is at the end of January. And when I got there, the day after I arrived in Micronesia, they actually closed the country to anyone coming in from any country affected by the virus. So if I'd been a day later, I wouldn't have actually gotten into the country. But then once I was there, I thought, oh, boy, how am I going to get home in a few weeks? Because if they're not letting anyone in, are there going to be flights out? And so there I was thinking, okay, well, I, my little my little day pack, if I had to abandon everything else, all of my equipment in my day pack, I had a sleeping bag, I had a pillow, <laughs> you know, I had my basic survival stuff and, and pretty much always do. <laughs> yeah. Except that one time in the shack when you didn't have a sleeping bag. Oh, yes, yes. In the Arctic. <laughs> I was shooting a film called Under Thin Ice about climate change. And we traveled to many different destinations in the Arctic. And uh, as we were getting towards the end of the project, we were headed back into northern Hudson Bay to a very remote region to swim with polar bears and film walruses, narwhals. That, so- that uh, sounds fun. Belugas. Yeah, it was amazing. So we literally got in these large canoes with motors. So like, you know, 20 to 24 foot canoe with motor and left this small community on the Arctic Circle called Nauyat and headed out on a long, long, long ride in pouring rain and nasty ice conditions until we beach ourselves on this little island where there's a shack that we're going to that we're going to stay in for a few weeks while we're filming the polar bears. And um, we start to set up our camp and get organized. And I start looking around and I'm like to the head guide, I'm like, I'm not seeing enough sleeping bags here. What's going on? And he kind of goes, what? Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) And literally half of the sleeping bags for our team were now like 80 kilometers away literally two days away because someone would have to go get them and come back. And how cold is it outside? Oh, it's the Arctic. So yeah, it was, it was below freezing. I know you're in Celsius, freezing. <laughs> but, but it's yeah. cold. It's. Oh yeah. It was below <laughs> freezing every night and oh, you know, around freezing most of the daytimes. Yeah. But you know, we were outfitted in our warm outer, outer garments and we just kind of nested like spoons in a drawer that night. <laughs> If you weren't close before, you were after that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Okay. No wonder you, now you do have your sleeping bag all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number six, 
What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Started or stopped doing in order to live or age well. Oh, gosh, that's, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm more and more conscious of my nutrition and sleep. So I guess as I age, I'm, I'm spending a lot less late night time. <laughs> doing anything right? like I'm, I'm really protective of, of my sleep I'm, I'm in bed early and I'm, I'm up at the crack of dawn so I, I guess I'm a lot more vigilant about that I'm a lot less night likely to end up you know at a party even if it's with friends that I haven't seen in a long time or I'm out at a conference and everyone's like yeah let's go out I'm a lot less likely to do that um, nowadays uh, just in order to keep at my best health and rest I think that's important boy it's important now isn't it for our immune systems. Yeah. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sleep is one of those things that not only can it, not only is it enjoyable on its mm -hmm. own, but the experience of being tired is no fun for anybody. And the longevity that that conveys. I mean, I was surprised to learn about, you know, that we've medically, you know, scientifically established that sleep deprivation will in fact contribute to or cause a shorter life. Like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I, I believe that. Yeah. So, okay. Number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? And I'm asking this question, recognizing you, you're Canadian. I know you've lived in the States and you've traveled all over, but nevertheless. So regardless of your orientation, what's, what's one thing you wish every American knew? That socialized medicine works really, really well. And that when you have no fear of getting sick and becoming bankrupt because of that, then you're able to be an entrepreneur, a creative person. You're able, you have options in your life. You don't have to worry about taking your kid to the doctor. And I think there's a lot of misinformation. We're not waiting in line, dying. I mean, we have actually a longer longevity than than Americans with the American with the um, socialized medical system that we have. Yeah, we've got hiccups. Everybody does right now. Everybody's medical systems around the world are being pushed to the limit, but. I hope I hope that every American realizes how important it is to get rid of that stress and that it's not going to kill research. It's not going to kill excellence. I mean, you know, we're still developing new cures and procedures and and medicines here in Canada and and America will too if we can somehow find a way that gives healthcare to everyone. It changes society. Like there's very few Things you have to be worried about when you know that you don't have to worry about getting hit by the bus or getting the virus or whatever else. Yeah. Thank you. Number eight, what is the most important or useful advice you've ever learned and successfully applied about making relationships work? Ooh. And it might not be advice. It might just be what you've learned. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it's, I think it's some important words. I could be wrong. <laughs> I might be wrong. <laughs> Yeah, those words are really important. I think, you know, as a younger person, I don't think I was I was ready for the love of my life when I was younger. I'm on my second husband. <laughs> I'm on my second marriage too. Okay. I hit the jackpot. Yeah, I absolutely hit the jackpot. And I wouldn't have been ready for Robert earlier in my life. I think respect is so important. If you think that you're going to marry someone and change them, it ain't going to happen. And, and you don't want to do that. You really want to love and respect the person for who they are and, and buoy them up and celebrate their joys and mutually. And then, you know, when you're wrong, admit it. 
<laughs> but I am so fortunate I, uh, I met Robert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, there's so much in what you've said there. And uh, I just recently heard this. It, it aligns, I think, with what you're saying, attributed to the spiritual teacher who recently passed, Ram Das. And he mm-hmm. said, I practice turning people into trees, which means appreciating them exactly as they are. <laughs> That's a really beautiful view. Okay, next question. So we've talked about love. We've talked about all the big things in life. I think almost maybe all that's left here is money. So what is something very useful that you have learned about money or what's something that you're always sure to do with it or that you never do with it? Well, I made the most money in my life in my early 20s when I was working in advertising before diving was a full-time career for me. And money can't buy you happiness. So I literally sold everything, got rid of everything, and moved to the Cayman Islands, to the tropics, to try and figure out how I could become an underwater explorer. And I literally moved with a suitcase full of stuff and nothing else, and suddenly I was happier. No, I did have a few things in storage back in Canada, but nothing that mattered, you know, after that. It's like, sometimes you wonder, like, why did I keep that, you know? Yeah. So I I think living small, like, you'll never... You'll never like regret time. Like like right now, I feel very fortunate to have this beautiful time with my husband at home, right? We don't know where the next paycheck's going to come from. We will figure it out. We're creative. We'll figure it out. But, but I want to be sure that I honor, respect, and love this time that I have with him because that part is a gift, right? The rest is, the rest is mechanics. We will figure it out. So I don't regret you know, not making boatloads of money <laughs> like I did you know, when I was younger. I think when people are on their deathbed, they'll regret not having spent time with somebody or not having had a particular experience with somebody. So it's connections that are more important to me. Yeah, I can see that. Thank you. Okay. Well, well speaking of money, I have made a $100 microloan on your behalf as a way of saying thank you for making mm. time, sharing your experience and your knowledge with me and everybody listening. This is to a, an entrepreneur is, uh, named Zahida, who's a 56-year-old woman living in Pakistan who has established a low-cost private school in her marginalized community. So this will help improve the quality of life for her, her family, and her community. So thank you oh, for giving me a reason awesome. to do that. Oh, thank you. That's, that's great. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. Also, just to make sure that we get this in here, and I'll say intotheplanet.com in the intro, but if people want, and and I still do have a few questions for you about creativity and writing, but if people want to connect with you or they want to learn more from you, what would you have them do? Sure. Well, I have a website intotheplanet.com where you can see, you know, a lot more of my writing and photography and everything else, or you can pick up my book into the planet, my life as a cave diver. And that's available all over the world on Amazon right now. A lot of independent booksellers have it too, but I know it's hard to reach those uh, booksellers these days. So, uh, so check it out on Amazon as a hardcover or an ebook or an audio book, however you prefer to experience it. Awesome. And do you read the audiobook, by the way? I do. Yeah. That was really hard. I I wanted to read my own book because it's my own story, obviously. Mm-hmm. I couldn't mm-hmm. imagine anyone else narrating my life. And and yet when we write, we write differently than when we speak. And so reading your own writing is a little bit challenging. But also the book is quite 
personal. It's it's tarred at times and and sad for me. Like there were some things just to reread my own writing and relive those experiences was difficult. You know, I'm, I'm there in the studio recording the audiobook and I'm, you know, bawling my eyes out and needing to take a break. <laughs> so that, that was a challenge, but, I, but I'm really glad I did it because I wanted to hear people hear my story in my voice. And yeah. Well, and the, you've got a great voice. And <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> not, not, I think, I think not everyone, I don't want to listen to everyone's voice for eight or 12 hours, but yours, <laughs> you know. Years would work. I, I, I find I read faster even when I speed up the audio. So I read your book, but that's cool. People have a variety of, of ways to, to uh, engage with it. Okay. So with your permission, let's transition now to the creative and the writing portion of this. You talk about reading the book, reliving some of those experiences when reading it was difficult. And I imagine that writing this was probably not easy either. What was the hardest part of writing this book? I wrote about twice as much as what ended up in the final book. So, <laughs> so it was really hard to, you know, find the thread of my own narrative and connect things. Like I work in this weird subculture, this weird space, and I knew that would be a wonderful backdrop for the book that would take people to someplace they've never been before. But the book's not about that. The book is about fear. The book is about sort of self-actualization. And and I wanted to create a universal message. It's not for adventurers necessarily or divers necessarily. It's for everybody to read. Like somebody that wants to read it on the beach and 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 get some some something positive out of it. So finding that narrative arc and sharing my message, narrowing that down to the right length was was challenging. Yeah. What was the moment you knew you were going to write this book? <laughs> I I have wanted to write the book for a long time and I started it four or five times over the last 15 years. <laughs> but it took me a while to think that I was capable of writing the book, I guess. So I think it took a certain wisdom or a certain point in my life before before I realized, like at first I thought, well, maybe I need a ghostwriter, maybe, you know, and I thought, no, this is my story. I will never be able to explain this, you know, to someone else to write. I need to do this myself. But that took a certain amount of self-confidence and I guess wisdom of the years to, uh, to pull off. Yeah. Yeah. I know we all have our own version of that, this inner critic that ultimately I believe is attempting to serve us, but, you know, holds us back. And one of my teachers talks about, the human being is fundamentally caught between this longing to expand, but the the yearning for security, mm-hmm. and it's you know this yeah. thing of continuously you know putting us out there, and and you talk in your book about how critical or maybe even vicious people can be online, you know especially or in person sometimes actively sabotaging some of your dive efforts, which is scary. But I would imagine that when, you know, you have internet trolls and everybody's got an opinion and you're, you're telling something that's very personal, and you're putting it out there, that that can be very daunting. What allowed you to push past that? Uh, well, you know, I was already exploring caves before the internet. <laughs> so when the internet started happening in these chat rooms and these forums and these gatherings of people started happening and then inevitably bullying and trolling, I was very naive at first. And so anything I read, I took very personally. And, and that, that's hard. I mean, it, it just fuels 
what everybody has in terms of, you know, imposter syndrome or, or, or whatever else. It really feels self-doubt. It, it took me a long time to figure out that, that the bullies and the trolls, that that told me more about them than about me. Because these are people I've never met. They don't know me. Really, they're, you know, voicing things that are about their own issues and shortcomings and challenges. Uh, so I guess it, it took a certain amount of maturity there just to let go of that and, and also to look at some of those people, even empathetically, you know, like, oh my gosh, what must be going on in someone's life for them to have been able to type this horrible thing to me? They don't even know yeah. me. You know? That's a really and, compassionate view. Well, I mean, can I turn that around? I mean, that's, that's what I hope to do. That, that's really beautiful. What was your process like to get the book done? I, first of all, I think this is kind of two parts. One is, did you have, what, like, what routines did you have? So I'll start with that. What routines did you have that helped you bring this book to completion? Well, the first, at first it was kind of total chaos. <laughs> I just dug out every expedition journal I had and pictures and, you know, tried to review my life. And I, and I tried to write down all of the key points on, on little cards and In, like, recipe like cards. index cards. Yeah. 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 And, and then I kind of sorted them and threw some out like that doesn't, that's not meaningful or who cares or nobody got, wants to read about that. Um, but I started kind of grouping things and then, and I stuck them on a wall and moved them around a million times. And, and then I just wrote and wrote and wrote and like, you know, wrote two books worth of materials before I even sent a draft to my, to my editor. And then I picked an editor that wasn't a diver. I picked an editor that I connected with on a very human level, but that had very few things in common with me in terms of life experience, because I thought this is who I want to write the book for. And her questions are, are going to be, and her reflections are going to be really important to me. And, and in the end, she became more of a therapist than an editor. <laughs> yeah. How did you like, find oh, that editor? Well, I, through my, my agent, I, you know, I have an agent that helped sell the, the proposal for my book and, Writing the proposal was a huge, huge process. But when he took it to uh, Penguin Random House, they immediately jumped on and said, you know, we want this and made an offer right away. And they gave me the opportunity to interview editors at Penguin Random House. Did they have many different imprints? Yeah, they have many different imprints and different different editors and editorial styles. And I got to ed to interview each of the groups and pick um, who I wanted to work with, which was fantastic. And I knew instantly when I met Bhavna Chauhan, my editor, that she was the one. That is amazing. That I know that doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. That, I that's feel really very cool. fortunate. Yeah. Well, then even finding the agent, I know that this is a question that many, many aspiring or many beginning writers have is how and when do I find an agent and do I really need one and that kind of thing. So I have two questions on that, which one of them is, did you start looking for an agent after you created a book proposal or did you create the book proposal after connecting with the agent? A little bit of both. So, so I have self-published a lot of technical manuals in cave diving, rebreather diving and stuff like that. And I've gotten really comfortable in the self-publishing space. I actually thought I was going to self-publish my memoir. And then I was approached by quite a prominent agent in the U.S. And he said, I'd like to meet with you. Uh, I, I want to publish your life story. And we met and had a 
beautiful lunch in Park Avenue, and I did not connect with him at all as a, as a human. <laughs> you know, like, I thought, okay, he has a great pedigree. His his client list is is off the charts. I I don't connect with him. I I'm not going to do this. I'd rather self publish than to to do this. And so for two years, I kept working on my proposal and and trying to put the pieces together. And I thought I'm going to self publish. And then a journalist wrote a major article about me in the Toronto Star. So it was three big pages on the weekend, you know, biggest paper in in, in Canada. And that never hurts. <laughs> it didn't hurt, yeah, because that afternoon I got a call from an, another agent in Toronto. Um, and he had been emailing and reaching out to the journalist and other people, common, you know, connections to try and connect with me. And he said do you have an agent? And I'm like, no, I don't have an agent. And well, let's meet. And the moment that I met him, it was an immediate connection. And he represented the kind of, the kind of authors that are similar to me. So he, you know, he represented Chris Hadfield, the, the astronaut and, and a lot of other sort of adventure athlete, environmental people. So it was a really good fit and I liked him. So <laughs> that, 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 that counts for a lot. Mm-hmm. So I got lucky. He found me. Right. Because you're going to be connected with these people for years. I mean, I... Yeah, it's a lifelong relationship in my my opinion. Yeah. That's great. So that that was one question about the agent, you know, the book, and you answered that. And then the other is about what... Why didn't you end up self-publishing? I know this is a big question for a lot of authors these days too. But why did you make the decision? I mean, obviously you told a story about how you found this person and the help and support probably they you know, they offered or, or, or could make available, but why, why tradition, why go through the traditional publishing route? Well, I mean, the internet is amazing these days in terms of its global interconnections. And I've done extremely well self-publishing the technical type of manuals that I, that I write, because I have that connection to this subculture of cave diving and technical diving and rebreather diving. And so, so I've got my tribe of people that, you know, instantly will, by both a technical type manual as well as my memoir. But I wanted to reach a much wider audience. So I wanted to break out of my little community and be able to sell the book wider. And that's what a traditional publishing uh, relationship gives you is, is, is that opportunity. It's still really, really hard. You know, you don't just give them the manuscript and then it's done and they, they handle all the marketing. Like you're only going to get a deal if the publisher understands that you have a tribe to sell to and that you are going to actively be marketing it. So I spent four months on the road talking in different places all over North America, almost every night in a new town, small groups and large, pushing my book this past fall and and getting up every morning and finding some new media to do, a podcast, an article, a, a TV show, whatever. So you do have to understand that whether you're with a traditional publisher or self-publishing, you still have to do all that stuff. They expect you to sell it unless your name is like Stephen King or, yeah, yeah. or some other major author. They expect you to get out in the world and make it happen because there's a lot of media out there and everybody's competing for your brain space. <laughs> yeah, it's never never been more competitive for sure. Mm-hmm. Did you engage a publicist? I, I imagine you must have considered it. If you didn't, why not? Well, with Penguin Random House, they they appointed me like an in-house publicist for for the launch. And the same thing, I have a HarperCollins in the U.S. And they 
put a publicist with me for the launch as well. So they helped in that really, really frantic time when the book first comes out and then expected me, you know, to to carry on. Now, I didn't hire a publicist because I have that background. So my first career in life was owning an ad agency and I have a background in visual communications design. So even with my self-published books, I write the books, I shoot the photos, I write the press releases, I do the layout, I I publish it. My husband, you know, packages the books, puts them on his bicycle and rides them to the post office for shipping. <laughs> and yeah, so we can do all of that. We do our own podcasts here, you know, we do our own videos, everything, pushing our social media. So I didn't feel that I needed a, a publicist. I, I wanted to do that on my own, but it's a, it's a full-time job. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big job. When you did all the speaking, I mean, that was an intense period and obviously you've got mm -hmm. an ongoing effort, but this is some, okay. So the question is, did you make an effort to grow an email list along with that? <laughs> I should, but I haven't. So there are people that are subscribing to my YouTube channels or following me on Facebook or, you know, subscribing to podcasts and things that we do. Uh, but I didn't actively develop an email list and send them a newsletter. I kind of felt like that's that, that top down marketing time has passed. And so I've, I've given more bottom up opportunities where I create the content, throw it out in the world and hope that others are sharing it and amplifying it to create a relationship with my viewers, listeners, watchers, whatever, followers, as opposed to me sort of forcing something into their email box. So I, I think, I, you know, I sometimes think I should have, <laughs> I should have kept that up, but. I know more and more I'm hearing, hearing this from other people who are what I consider expert book marketers, just about the importance of cultivating an email list because these platforms can change their algorithms at any time. And, you know, who actually sees the posts we make is a function of things far beyond our control or email, you know, but in what you're saying, so I don't know, you know, yeah, what, we, I don't know. what we should it, do, but I am thinking of the Chinese thing about the best time to plant a tree was 20 years yeah, ago. That's right. That's <laughs> but, but right. The, but the next best time is today. It's today. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that there are people who would say, gosh, I didn't know you had a book out or why didn't you tell me? And I probably should have been just letting them know. So yeah, that might be one of my regrets that I haven't cultivated that, but you know, I can only do so much. <laughs> yeah. And clearly you're doing a lot very well. So again, yeah. I, and, and as much, no, thank you. Thank you for sharing. And a lot of these questions, you know, partly for my own benefit, I've written one book and I'm in the process. I've, I've got a manuscript done for the next one, but also for, I know there's many people, you know, I, I remember asking a publisher once, do you think it's true that everyone has at least one book inside them. And she said, unfortunately. Unfortunately, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Unfortunately, that was her view. But I, yeah. I think in the same way that, you know, many people have this secret aspiration to start their own company, this kind of entrepreneurial urge that in the same way we want, each of us wants to write a book, I think. But many of us think that finishing the manuscript or even publishing the book is the finish line. And once we get there, I think we, it becomes clear. No, no, no. That's just a starting line. Yeah, no, I have to say the book tour was probably one of the hardest things I've ever, I've ever done. I mean, literally, I'm, I'm in my car every day, you know, driving three hours, 10 hours, whatever, uh, and getting up in the morning, doing my media, like I was on serious sleep deprivation. And every night you've got to be on and give the best talk of your life and engage with people so that they feel special and they, 
They they know that you know they're valued as as your your audience. So it's like you're on, you're on, you're on for months. And when I came home from that and dropped into my husband's arms, I was just like exhausted. It, interestingly, he he's American and had applied for Canadian residency, and so he wasn't able to leave the country during that time frame. So I would, had to do this on my own. Plus, economically, it made a lot more sense for him to be at home, support us, you know, in any way that, you know, I could get him to help me with with PR and things. And it made more sense for me to be on the road on my own. So it was really hard. But if you don't, you'll sell all of about three copies of your book. <laughs> yeah. And mom, will, she'll have all three on her bookshelf for a long time. That's right. I, I remember yeah. I heard I heard this guy. He's so, so funny. Stephen Prothero, who t- he, he's a professor somewhere in Boston. And he talked about when he sold a book. And I think it was literally like 20 copies and they went to libraries. And when he would travel, mm-hmm. he would actually go find them and put a $10 bill inside them to see when he came back if anybody <laughs> had even checked it out and nobody had. You know, it's like, that's very, great. Very humbling. Very humbling. Well, I released my book in Canada on the same day that Margaret Atwood's new book, The Testaments, came out. So it's oh. like some people would say, oh my God, that's got to be the worst day ever to release yeah. a book. I'm like, well, you know, Margaret Atwood is going to bring a lot of people into bookstores. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll run with that. But it's funny, I'd go into a bookstore and I'd move my books close to hers, right? <laughs> <It's in the laughs> That's new great. I'd go up to the, I'd go up to the uh, store owner. I'd be like, hey, can I sign you the books? I'm the author. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is cool. I'm like, well, how about we move them to? <laughs> yeah, that's smart. That, yeah. that reminds me of Sarah Blakely when she was starting Spanx, went into the department stores and sold her own product. Yeah, yeah. That's really that's really smart. I I, I confess I have done that in a bookstore. So, you know, a <laughs> hey, every book, copy eh? counts. I'll sign it for you specifically. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. What technology was useful for you in getting your book done? I mean, you've talked about note cards, but what else was really um, useful or even critical in getting this story told? Yeah. Oh, I, you know, a lot of people use software like Scrivener, things like that, in order to organize their thoughts and move things around. And I ended up just in a big, fat old, you know, Microsoft Word document, <laughs> just broken down into chapters. And I must have reordered the chapters two or three times as well. But um, so I didn't use a lot of a lot of high tech for it. Although when I started proofing things, I started using this the speech feature in Word. It's really hard to read your own stuff without skipping words or missing small mistakes. But when you listen to it and read it at the same time, it's a different experience. So I found that to be quite handy to listen listen to my own book, even if it's just in that computer voice. Oh, yeah. You share some things in your book that are extraordinarily personal, mm-hmm. uh, including things about Paul, mm-hmm. your first husband. My first husband, yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about what that was like writing that and putting it out into the world. just. You know, because again, I know we all have this, we all wonder how our words are going to land with people, both the subjects that we're writing about and the audiences reading them. And, and, and I wonder if you would be willing to just share what that was like. Yeah. I mean, my editor helped me to understand that the book had to be deeply personal and vulnerable. People want to know what you're thinking and you're feeling. So it can't be superficial. And so it's, you have to be very honest and that is hard. 
there are times when she asked me for more and she there were times when she asked me to pull back. You know, there are times where she sensed my my anger over my first husband and she says, yeah, but it's really important for all of us to understand why you fell in love and how you fell in love. Like, because because something brought you together. So what was that? And, you know, what are the good bits? And so she would help me strike that balance. And that also helped me strike a better balance in my own mind as well and, and, and a better understanding about how all of those things that happen in life, those good, those bad, those ugly things, it do inform who you are today. And therefore, you cannot regret those. Those are not mistakes. Those are not failures. Those are growth in your life. Um, so so she helped me to to really understand that. And if it wasn't a personal, vulnerable book, I, I don't think it would be a success. But it made the release really, really stressful for me. Like I, I was worried about what my family would think, what what Paul, my first husband, would think, how how people would react to the book. Would they find a message? Yeah. So it was scary waiting for the first reviews, waiting for the first readers. Now I feel much more comfortable about all of that. Very content, in fact. Yeah. No, it sounds like good advice from your editor too. And what a, mm -hmm. what a privilege to have someone guiding you through that about mm -hmm. share more, maybe share less and that, and that kind of thing. But also something I wondered about this is it, it sounds like, you know, from the acknowledgements and some of what you say in the book that your family has been very supportive of you over mm -hmm. the years. And I know that's oh, not yeah. true for everybody. Yeah. I'm really lucky. And I'll admit as a young teenager, I, I felt like I was different. <laughs> I knew that I was going to you know, forge a different path in life and and maybe didn't have, you know, the the full understanding of how important that rock of that foundation of my family was. But but yeah, in, in the long run they've been incredibly supportive. And and as a child, my my mom and dad always encouraged us to, you know, pursue things that we were curious about. They always encouraged us to chase things that we thought were impossible. So I never felt like there were limitations placed on on me and and what was possible in life what a, what a gift from your parents mm-hmm yeah that, that's really yeah. amazing and especially in the work I do with people as a coach you know how much of this work is I don't want to say it's like therapy but in some ways it's helping people really come to terms with the stories that they're living that are a function of mm -hmm. their first you know family you know their their initial family unit <laughs> so that's that's a real gift okay. I'm sure this is a occurrence for me, even having done now nearly a hundred of these <laughs> interviews. I always think of the the three brilliant questions once disconnect. I think this has been really fantastic. And I wonder, is there anything about the writing process, the creative process, promotion that we didn't touch on that you feel might serve the listener? If 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 so, maybe now's a chance. I guess I would just encourage someone. I mean, since we all do feel like we have a story and we all do have stories, we all have books in us, you know, just, just go for it. I mean, whether you ever publish that or not, it's a, it's a record for your family for the future. It's, it's your chance to spill it out onto the page and you'll probably find it to be pretty therapeutic <laughs> in the process. So I would encourage people to write and explore their story. It's a, it's a great experience. Yeah. Awesome. And then as it relates to, I think we covered everything in the first section. We didn't talk about James Cameron, but that's pretty cool that you consulted with him or he consulted <laughs> yeah, with you, I his, suppose. Yeah, I got to take him on his first cave dives and help shoot the uh, trailer for uh, the, the pitch trailer for Sanctum, the 3D cave movie. Yeah. So we didn't talk necessarily about 
the challenges of being a woman in a male dominated field. Is there anything that you feel might serve the listener talking about that? Yeah, I think my career is very much a specialized niche within a specialized niche within a specialized niche. And all of those niches are male dominated <laughs> still. Because what are the day. three? You have dive. <laughs> yeah. So diving, cave diving, and then and then being an underwater filmmaker in that cave environment too. So yeah, these are all, you know, very much male dominated activities and, and it's been challenging. Definitely been the only woman on the boat and on the expedition quite a lot in my life. But I realized that I just have to work hard. I don't really have time to be a woman on a lot of these, you know, dangerous missions. I, I'm just one of the team. And so I work as hard as I can. And I do learn to ask for the gig because there are times that people kind of stare glassy eyed past you to the next qualified male. So you do, it's incumbent on you to, you know, go ask for the gig and say, I can do this. And you have to be able to sell yourself where people don't think that you traditionally should be operating. Yeah. Well, and that go ask for the gig is, I think that's good advice for everybody too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. For what we really want. And then in fear, I, I didn't write the statement, but you said something in your TED talk about, if I'm remembering correctly, about running toward fear. Yeah. Not running from it. Yeah. If we don't chase fear, we will spend our whole life running from it. So I, I I do think it's important, you know, let your kids out and skin their knees so that they learn about the consequences of their actions so they understand risk. It, because when we, you know, we swim into that dark cave or <laughs> the virtual dark cave in our mind and stand on the threshold of that darkness, your eyes will adjust to the light. And when you're standing on that threshold, you are an explorer. You have an opportunity to make a new discovery for yourself or maybe discover something completely new for humanity. So step into that darkness, you know, walk towards that fear. That is where we have an opportunity to grow individually and as a civilization. Yeah, that's beautiful. That that reminds me too of the Joseph Campbell quote about the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. Maybe never more, never a guest more appropriate <laughs> for that. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jill, this has been a privilege. Really enjoyed this conversation. I love your book. Thank you. Uh, I can't wait to to share this with others. And I thank you for being so generous with your, with your time and, and your experience. Oh, thanks. And to everyone out there and to you as well. I hope you're well and safe and can find some light in these dark times. Yeah, thank you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community. 
get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 